Hello, friends and family. There are a lot of difficult things happening in the world right now. I was hopeful that the COVID-19 global pandemic would bring us all closer together, remind us how connected we all really are. Then George Floyd was killed, and again a light was shined on the divides that still exist in our country. I struggled with whether to do an episode discussing this issue. I wasn't sure how I would do it or if I even should. Then I thought about my children and my students. I have discussed the current situation with my eight-year-old daughter and my nine-year-old son, and if I had direct contact with my students and my athletes right now, we'd be talking too. When I do these sorts of videos, I generally imagine I'm talking to my kids or to my students. And for a show focused on finding even one thing that might help one other person, some discussion seemed necessary. I'm not here to tell other people what to think or feel. That's not my place and it's not my intention. I don't know what it feels like to be part of a disenfranchised or discriminated group, and I'm not going to pretend like I have any expertise in this area. Sometimes students or former students will come to me for advice. I'm privileged to have those kinds of relationships, and I want to help. Often, though, I wind up saying I don't have a great answer. Sometimes there are no great answers. In those moments, I simply try to listen and empathize to, to the degree to which I'm capable. I admit the things I don't know, and we talk. I usually wind up telling stories, talking about things that have connected with me, inspired me, helped me. It's not perfect, but it allows us to think and feel together. So that's what I'm going to do for this episode. I'm going to acknowledge my limits and tell a few stories. First, I'm going to talk about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood again. I talked about Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to start off our first episode of this show, and I couldn't help but think about the messages of Mr. Rogers again this week while I watched all of the pain and sadness and anger and confusion in the news this week. In the first year of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Fred Rogers had already been in public television but in the first year of the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, on June 7, 1968, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood had a special episode that discussed the assassination of Robert Kennedy. The famous Daniel Tiger, brought up as a child might, the assassination, and he said that man killed that other man while he was talking. 
Lady Aberlin, one of the human characters who was visiting the land of make-believe, said a lot of people are sad and scared about it. That was the first thing I thought of in terms of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood when watching the news this week. Because that was something that was always important to Fred Rogers and to the show was to talk to specifically young people about what was really happening and how they were really feeling without sugarcoating things and pretending. And the show had the courage to admit it didn't have all of the answers, but it made it clear it was all right to have the feelings people were having. And this was something extraordinary in the very first year of the show. I also thought about an episode, episode 195, that aired on May 9th, 1969, with Officer Clemens. Officer Clemens was the police officer in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and he was played by Francois Clemens, a homosexual African-American man. In this particular episode, Fred Rogers was sitting in the backyard, cooling off his feet in one of those small plastic children's pools, and he invited Officer Clemens to sit down with him and share the pool with him in 1969. I just think that's such a wonderful image because Fred Rogers' real seminal message was, I like you just the way you are. And he didn't try to say that he understood what racism felt like or anything like that, but he understood the importance of showing an image, the power of showing an image of just accepting each other and loving each other for who we are, for who someone else is. Next, I want to talk about Upper Iowa University, and if you're someone who doesn't live in Iowa or doesn't follow Division II athletics, you probably don't know Upper Iowa University, but that's where I went to college. Upper Iowa University is a, an NCAA Division II university in terms of athletic programs and it sits in a small town in rural eastern Iowa 
I think it sits in Fayette, Iowa, and I think the population of Fayette, Iowa is somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand people, give or take. And there's there's actually not even a high school in Fayette. The high school for that area is actually in West Union, a neighboring town. So there's no high school in this small Iowa town, but there's a four-year university. And I really loved my time at Upper Iowa. I consider it one of the most influential periods of my life. And that's for a few reasons. I went there to play football. And if you don't know how the sort of system, the classification system of NCAA sports works, and I'm specifically talking about football here, but it basically works like this. There's junior colleges. Junior colleges um, are two-year schools. A lot of times athletes are going to those schools to develop their skills, maybe get the opportunity for a scholarship at a bigger school later, something like that. But then we get kind of into the NCAA four-year system. There's Division Three, which where I'm from in Iowa, we have the Iowa Conference schools, which are schools like Warburg and Luther and Coe and Loris and Central. And it's great athletics. I'm not, certainly not knocking any level of collegiate athletics. In order to play college athletics, athletes have to be dedicated and have you know, some level of inherent ability. And it's a lot of work to play sports at any level of college. But that's kind of the that bottom rung of the NCAA four-year athletic programs. It's still great competition and great athletics. Then there on the other end of the spectrum is the Division I FCS schools. That's, or FBS, excuse me. FBS is the top level. That would be like here in Iowa, it's University of Iowa, Iowa State, the teams you would usually watch on television, the Alabamas and Floridas and Stanfords and all of those schools. That's Division I FBS in terms of football. It's the bowl system. A step down from that used to be called uh, NCAA Divi or Division I AA, which is now the FCS, which is the championship series because they do kind of a playoff thing, is around here it's teams like University of Northern Iowa, University of North Dakota, University of South Dakota, South Dakota State. Those schools that are a little bit smaller than the larger state schools typically and still a very high level of competition, but that's kind of the next step down. And then Division Two, where I played, is kind of this island of misfit toys right in the middle. And I say Island of Misfit Toys lovingly. It's one of the things that really appealed to me 
about playing that level of athletics. It's this kind of catch-all where it's a lot of athletes who maybe had the athletic ability to play at a Division I level, but maybe didn't have the grades or even in some cases got in trouble for something and couldn't get a scholarship or lost a scholarship at a Division I school. On the other hand, it's a lot of athletes who were lacking some component of sort of that measurable athletic ability. Athletes who were undersized. That was me. I was very small for uh, college linemen. I was an offensive and defensive lineman. Or we'd have athletes who were really fast, really tremendous athletes, but were shorter or smaller or whatever it was. So it was a combination of these really talented athletes who wound up there for one reason or another. It was some athletes who were really, and I was one, kind of exceeding what my natural athletic ability was by trying to grind it out and immerse myself in an understanding of the game and things like that. So it was sort of this catch-all. And it was kind of the same with coaches. There were coaches who were moving up the coaching ladder and coaches who were coming into that level for, you know, from maybe a bigger school that they had been at at one time. And now they're kind of taking a different path. And I loved it for that reason. It was this bringing together of all these different people. And one of my very favorite things about it, especially at Upper Iowa, is because we're playing Division II athletics. And Upper Iowa was able to qualify as a Division II institution the way that I understand it because Upper Iowa has all of these satellite campuses all over the world. So you can go to Upper Iowa University in a different country. There's all these satellite campuses. So the enrollment is actually fairly high, but on campus there in Fayette, and I think the on-campus has grown. I like to go back there to go to games and things like that, and they've certainly done a lot uh, physically on campus with new buildings and things like that. So I think the on-campus enrollment is higher than I was there. I'm not certain. And I'm not certain of what the on-campus enrollment was when I was there, but I want to say it was something like you know, 600 students or something that were actually there on campus living in town and that created this sort of wonderfully unique and odd environment because the athletics are all right there so a high percentage of the student population on campus were athletes and athletes were recruited and came in from all over the country men and women from people from all different backgrounds and belief systems and races and cultures and it was this wonderful mashing together of all of these people in this small community so when we went out together and hang out with each other 
in college, we knew almost everyone. It was like going to a high school, a smaller high school, where it wasn't like you would show up at an event and not recognize anyone. We pretty much knew everyone. And it was such a wonderful experience for me as someone who grew up in rural Iowa, which rural Iowa has a lot of wonderful things about it, but it's not an overly diverse area. In fact, it's not very diverse at all. And it was so great to really interact with people who had a different background than I did, who had gone through different life experiences than I had, and to really get to connect with those people. And if you play on a sports team or have a similar experience like that where you're you're working with people in close proximity, working toward a common goal, spending a lot of time together, you really build a bond with those people, or at least that's how I've always felt, is my teammates are family to me, and we quickly became family because we were working together and sweating and bleeding together for hours and hours and hours every week for years. And that builds a bond and builds a closeness that I'm so thankful for and so grateful to have experienced. And I know that I'm a lot better person for having that experience. Just for making those connections and having my mind open to things that I maybe had not even considered before. And the only real advice that I even had to give my own children now as we talked about the current situation was I told them how important I think it is to talk to people who don't look like us and who don't believe what we believe and who grew up differently than we grew up because I think we all get better for it. And my thoughts and my heart went out to many of my friends, my former teammates, my extended family from Upper Iowa who have felt racial prejudice, who have grown up feeling in some ways that, I don't know, that some people didn't treat them equally or I, mean, I don't even know how to put it into words, but my heart just really went out to my friends from around the country, and I hope they're doing well. I've talked to a few 
it left me feeling more optimistic after I talked to some of my friends and just understanding that we were able to come together and love each other and respect each other and that's what the world always needs. Next, I'm going to talk about a book that I wrote, a book that came out a little more than a month ago. And I want to preface this with saying this is in no way a sales pitch. I do not want to in any way commodify the current situation. It's been an interesting time for my first book to be released, not only while we were practicing social distancing due to the pandemic, but now with the with our current situation, because the book that I wrote deals with the issue of race and feeling like an outsider. And it's not written from a place of understanding that relationship or those feelings because I cannot and should not try to assume what it would feel like to be discriminated against. I am a white man and I don't have the same understanding or relationship with with everything that's happening now and has been happening in terms of people being oppressed in our country for generations. The reason I wrote the book and the reason that I create most of the things that I do, the things that I write, things that I draw, whatever it might be, is in large part to help me try to think something through and maybe not even come up with a good answer, but to think things through. So the book that I wrote started with wondering how would... It kind of started with the idea of how could I describe something like racism or bigotry, sexism, any kind of thing that puts people into a different classification, that makes someone else the other, that somehow assumes certain people are less than. How would I try to explain that to a child? How would I try to explain that to my children? How how would a child look at something like racism, for instance, 
experiencing it for the first time or seeing it for the first time, it would seem to not make any sense. I sort of approach the idea again that I can't talk about this sort of thing from a first person point of view, but how might someone, if you took someone from another planet and had them see something that happens in our world and they could look at it objectively, would it make any sense at all? And I thought, I don't think it would. I don't think it would add up how people can classify and minimize other people. So I started writing with that idea in mind. And I wrote this book called Ernest from Earth. And... The story that came out of this was, I, I pictured this boy, Ernest is the, the main character, the title character. He's 12 years old and he lives in a future earth that I optimistically made a world that had grown past the ideas of poverty and bigotry and famine and war and was living a more peaceful, unified existence. And I... I made it so that in this setting, people could basically travel across galaxies as easily as we drive around in vehicles today. And I made that sort of the one of the main reasons that a lot of our earthly social problems had disappeared because people figured out how to instantly jump across the universe and mine resources to eliminate things like poverty and how it was a unifying a unifying endeavor for humanity and how humans learned in this made up setting that we were not the only intelligent, quote, intelligent life forms in the universe and how that brought us together. Now, that is just the setting for the story, but then the story really is about examining human relationships and empathy as a participant and an observer because at the start of the story, Ernest gets separated from his family. They are on a trip in space. They're about to jump to another location in the universe. And there is an accident and Ernest is separated from his family. And in this made up universe or this made up situation within the universe that 
I came up with is basically that when humans discovered life and societies on other planets, it seemed that life on other planets developed in much the same way it did and continues to on Earth. That people formed tribes and communities and cities and societies and separations, divisions occurred and groups of people oppressed other people. And in this story, Earth has maintained a real hands-off approach from any involvement with these other societies, choosing to just observe them as they developed in the way Earth did. This all happens, this is all explained early in the story. And then Ernest, after being separated from his family, winds up on a different planet that is inhabited by individuals possessing red skin or blue skin. And Ernest is able to look at the oppression and division in this setting. The blue-skinned individuals represent the empowered group, the group that sort of holds the cards for whatever reason. And the red citizens are those who have been disenfranchised. Ernest winds up becoming friends with this red citizen of the planet named Dat, who is around his same age. And the story really starts there, and it's about Ernest seeing some of these things that he hadn't seen before, that he hadn't experienced in our, in the idyllic future Earth of this story. And he struggles with understanding what is happening. And I tried to approach it that way in the sense that Ernest was sort of reflecting how I felt when I thought about trying to explain social issues like this to a child that it doesn't really make sense and that I don't have firsthand experience to be able to explain it in that way. So Ernest is really experiencing these things as an observer and he's seeing them for the first time and not understanding them. They don't make sense. And at the heart of the story, it's really about empathy. Because Ernest is in some ways an outsider. He faces challenges. He's separated from his family. 
but he can't experience the racial discrimination in the same way that Dat can, that his friend can, because he's not in it. He's not a part of it. He is an outsider looking in. And it's really about that pursuit of empathy, which to me is the greatest human endeavor. I believe true empathy is impossible. And we need to recognize that, that we can't fully understand the plight of another person, that we can't fully understand anyone else's feelings, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, because we can't get in and feel how they feel and see things through their eyes. But empathy is the greatest human quest because it's important to pursue that knowing that we can never fully achieve it to pursue connecting with people and trying to see things from their perspective to the degree we are able. And that's really what the story I wrote was about, how Ernest tries and he wants to understand and he really can't, at least not fully. But the story is about how it's still important to try. So, again, that's not a pitch. I would never want to try to sell anything in these difficult times. And that has been... That's been interesting that an interesting is probably not the right word. It's it's I don't know. I wrote the story to sort of work through my own thoughts and feelings as that's one of the great things about creative pursuits. And I wish it was not as relevant as it is. So, again, um, that's not trying to get anyone to read it or whatever, but that's something that writing a book is a long process and bringing it to publication. It was a couple year process for me as I wrote around my my job and things with my kids and all those things and the book came out and I've been trying to put together a curriculum guide and some other things that we've been offering to schools and educational organizations that is focused on helping students, helping young people try to 
work through their feelings and trying to empathize with each other. And that's another reason that I wrote the book and I, I geared it towards middle grade readers and I made the central character 12 years old because it's so important to start with young people and I work with young people every day and I will say that is something that keeps me optimistic even during these dark times because I see how kind and how loving and how good this generation of young people is the people who I get to work with every day under normal circumstances. So that's it. That's just talking about what brought me to that story a little bit. If anyone wants the book, I'd be happy to try to send one to you or send you the curriculum guide stuff. I don't want to ask people to buy anything right now. There are so many more important things right now. It was just something that <laughs> that story was on my mind now. And I was reminded of a quote attributed to Cesar A. Cruz, who said, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And for me, anytime I create a piece of art, it's really to try to comfort myself. And I guess that was kind of my point with it. If you, you know, that's something everyone can do is write, create, speak, whatever, work through your thoughts at this time. And with that quote, I'm going to transition to, this is something that I did in the first episode of this show, is something that I plan to have as a regular segment on this show, which is sort of a quotes of the week portion, where this is all about looking at things that I've that inspire me and help me, and at this this time is no different. So there's a couple pieces because I try to bring these things to my students. If it's maybe a piece of literature, or a quote they don't know, or to introduce them to maybe a person they don't know. So a couple pieces of literature that popped into my head this week. The first is Dream Deferred, sometimes called Harlem, by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? It's a wonderful poem. I don't do it justice or again have the same connection to the feelings of a dream deferred that it conveys, but 
it really is very relevant today, as relevant as it ever has been in that last line, or does it explode? We've seen that this week. The next poem that came to mind this week is Human Family by Maya Angelou. I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious. Some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profundity. And others claim they really live the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight, brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, not yet one common man. I know ten thousand women called Jane and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mere twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts while lying side by side. We love and lose in China, we weep in England's moors, and laugh and moan in Guinea, and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland, are born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. So that's it. Those are the some of the poems, literary things that came to my mind this week. Again, I don't do them justice or pretend to connect with them in the same way that others might. But that's such a wonderful power that art and creativity has is it can let us take that little, maybe just the first step to trying to empathize with someone else. And it can comfort the disturbed and perhaps disturb the comfortable. I don't have any great answers. I'm not trying to tell anyone how to feel or how to react. All I know is how I feel and what I believe. And I believe people can change. I believe society can change. I believe love is the only force strong enough to tear down hate. And I believe in you. 
I'm going to end this episode the same way I ended the last episode. The audio will end here and I'm going to continue a picture that I started drawing last week. We talked about grid drawing and I started a grid drawing of my maternal grandmother, my grandma Clara True, that I'm going to, I'll give the finished drawing to my mother. But art is something that comforts me and <laughs> the idea, the thought of my grandmother is something that's also very comforting. She's a woman who had 14 of her own children who at different times with my grandfather raised those children and 10 foster children who never turned away a person in need who always always had something to offer others even when she had nothing herself. So that's what I'm going to do now. End this episode and do a little drawing. I send all my best to everyone out there right now struggling. I send my love and appreciation.